This is unstructured. Hey, everybody. Today we have Kevin Roberts. Now, Kevin has a master's in psychology. He specializes in ADHD, cyber addiction. He's written several books, and I believe he's suffered actually or currently suffers through ADHD and possibly with cyber addiction himself. I don't know. How are you doing today, Kevin? Well, I'm doing really well, Eric, and I'm really glad to be here and I'm excited to talk to you. I want to know essentially first, what exactly is ADHD and how did you discover that you actually had this? Well, first of all, ADHD is a mental health condition. It's a condition that is characterized by a lot of things, but to make a long story short, it carries with it executive function deficits. That means deficits and difficulties in organization, planning, structure, paying attention singularly to uh, routine and repetitive tasks over a long period of time. Uh, And if you haven't noticed, these are all things that are required to succeed in school and many careers. So ADHD is something that impedes success and development in careers and in school. Uh, And I was a guy who I just thought I was weird. You know, I, I, I was impulsive. That's another thing that with ADHD, a lot of ADHD people have impulsivity issues. I was high energy, had a hard time sitting still. I, my handle on the CB radio when I was a kid was given to me and it was called motor mouth. That's what I was called (laughs) as a kid, motor mouth. I still own that as my CB handle. Um, but, uh, I didn't discover that I was actually ADHD until I was 25 and I taught in a school and the school psychologist kind of clued me in that there was a paradigm that explained a lot of the difficulties uh, that I had because I grew up with a brother who I like to say has way DHD. I mean, he's like mm. way out there with ADHD. And uh, so compared to him, the rest of us in our family, we all look pretty neurotypical, pretty normal. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I have a crazy question. Is there a, a, any kind of parallel with dyslexia? A lot of people who have dyslexia will also have ADHD. And uh, if you're ADHD, your your chances of having dyslexia are significantly higher. And one of the sort of fundamental generalities to consider around that is when you get when you have one condition or set of characteristics that results from differences and unique functioning of the brain, it's very common to have others. So people with ADHD are more prone to anxiety people with ADHD are more likely to be diagnosed with depression and people with ADHD are much more likely, significantly more likely to struggle with substance abuse and process addictions like the process addiction. I struggled with cyber addiction and that, that those struggles and my professional experiences made up my first book uh, called Cyber Junkie, Escape the Gaming and Internet Trap. Yeah, and I definitely want to go over that in a minute because I believe you appeared on 2020 as an expert to help the I panelists did. and whatever with um, three what three segments? Uh, I think I've, I don't know, I, a couple. I mean, I've been on a lot of different news <laughs> shows, but certainly at least I think twice on 2020, maybe three. I don't know. Interesting. Um, they're very, 2020 is very committed to uh, that particular problem and to raising awareness. And one of the things we're doing right now is there's a study at Detroit Children's Hospital And we're analyzing the doing brain scans, functional magnetic resonance imaging. I like saying that because it makes me sound smart that I know how to say that. (laughs) Um, But we're we're looking at the brains of people who we could call screen addicts, whether they're video game addicts or 
excessive users of the phone, you know, Facebook, I call us Facebook freakazoids, whatever, people who excessively use the mm-hmm. screen to the point that it impedes or gets in the way of uh, their daily lives. That's fascinating. And so, what? yeah, we're finding that, you know, young people that have these issues, their brains are different. There are different things happening in their brains. And those things are very similar to the types of brain signatures we see in people who are chemical addicts, alcohols, drugs, whatever, and process addicts, like people who have eating addictions, uh, those types of issues, that there are many similarities. There are many regions in the frontal parts of the brain uh, that do not function typically. It's very complex, but I mean, that. It, it, let me just tell you, we are, there are some amazing uh, data that we're collecting, and this study will be reported, I think, in the New England Journal of Medicine within a year or so. So it's very exciting stuff. No, that definitely is, and um, it's fascinating. Actually, one of my previous guests is um, Professor James Fallon out of the uh, University of Irvine. He studies brain scans. That's his specialty. He's the guy who can determine a psychopath based on a brain pattern. And Oh, that's interesting. I'm sorry I didn't listen to that one. I got to go back and check out your archives. <laughs> yeah, he's a, a really fascinating guy. But I, the brain scan science, I think, is fascinating and wonderful because they're starting to actually be able to prove certain things that were only theories before, like that people are yeah. reacting a certain way uh, to this stimulation or impulse or addiction or whatever it is. And now they've got the brain scans to be able to say, no, look, the brain lights up here when they do this, or it, right. or it is dead in a particular region. That seems to be a more common thing is like parts of the brains that seem to be not firing when people are doing activities. Yeah. And with, with the whole sociopath, uh, angle. I mean, that's really interesting stuff because the science, I mean, I'm sure your guy, your guy knows this better than I do, but the science shows that people of that type of mindset and behavior lack certain connections mm-hmm. between certain brain regions. And it's that lack of connection that, um, the lack of those connections that seems to underlie their behavior. And it's a really interesting thing to think about because, you know, it's, it's, they're not behaving that way because they didn't go to church enough you know, as children, or they weren't punished enough. There are just, you know, connection issues that make them much more susceptible to that kind of behavior. Yes, definitely. And I'm also concerned too about, um, I think they're called essentially psychotropic drugs, whatever, that are treating different conditions. Some of them are possibly causing problems. Like, I don't know the statistic, but a great number of these mass shooters are on drugs like the Paxils and whatnot. Right. The, this, those, what you're talking about is the serotonin reuptake inhibitors and they, yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of data that in some people they do not work very well. And I just had one of my ADHD clients, a young adult with whom I work, and he had just started taking an antidepressant and he was having very strange, thoughts, thoughts of self-harm, thoughts of harming others. And of course, I told him to call his psychiatrist. This was only a couple days into the medication. And I said, call your psychiatrist immediately. And he did and was taken off of it. But, you know, luckily, this young man had somebody like me who he trusts and, you know, can easily pick up the phone and talk to. And I was able to guide him. But I think in a lot of cases, 
you know, people become overwhelmed by these experiences and they don't know where to turn. But overall, I think those medications, you know, help a lot of people, but there are a small percentage of people that have uh, side effects. And I know of, I have had a person um, in my family who committed suicide oh. and we are convinced that it was under the influence of an antidepressant. Yeah. So Chris Cornell, those, these are, and, um, but I, I've taken an antidepressant, uh, before and it worked wonders on me, but I think that whenever we're using psychoactive medications and as I like your word, you use psychotropic medications. We need to be very careful and vigilant, uh, to spot so possible side effects. Yeah. And also I'm, I want to be careful with things too, because I'm of the mindset we view ADHD as a disability of a sort and dyslexia mm -hmm. as a disability of a sort. But I think there's a lot of science coming through that is saying, no, not necessarily. This is just a particular genetic adaptation. And by that, like dyslexia, well, most dyslexics have um, remarkable memory capability to things that they hear, but they have trouble reading. Now, the Right. Well, I find that a lot of folks, because I work with a lot of folks who have dyslexia, and the ones that I, I tend to get are highly creative people. Mm -hmm. I have a young man I work with who's 16, and he likes to make clothes, mm -hmm. and he sees clothes in his mind very clearly and he can describe these pictures in his mind and then he can take those pictures and put them into um actual clothes that he makes and he has a sewing machine he's like 16 he's probably going to be involved in the fashion industry uh designing his own clothing line you know he's a skateboarder that's the thing he's a you know you think like a 16 year old who likes clothes you know uh maybe you know, certain images come to mind, but this is a guy who skateboards, he's a risk taker, sure. he, he takes physical risks, but he's got this other side to him, and he's dyslexic. So I find that dyslexic folks are often highly creative, highly capable people who are um, endowed with unique skills and talents. And unfortunately, the school system doesn't usually recognize that. They only recognize the disability, the, the drawbacks. And that that wisdom that I'm that I'm sharing also holds true, I think, with ADHD. Exactly. And I want to go into that too. And and part of the problem that I see is that the Gutenberg Press is relatively new. We, if you look at the human evolution, writing's right. not a big part of it. That's right. This is all new. 500, 550 years old or whatever. Right. Now, people did scrolls before that, but the truth is it's we're not wired for it. We're, we're so far advanced with our technologies versus what our um, physicality or brains are able to handle. That I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing. And you mentioned risk-taking and that's significant too, because in a hunter gathering society, and there's some articles that are proving this out, ADHD quote sufferers are better adapted, healthier, have more nutrients and are better. Well, Tom Hartman, who I, of whom I'm very fond, and I don't know if you know Tom, he has a daily nationally syndicated radio show at this point, but he's written a number of books on ADHD. And in fact, my own books on ADHD are certainly inspired by him. And Tom Hartman has a book called ADD, A Different Perception or An Alternate Perception. And it basically makes the hypothesis, it puts forth the, this supposition 
that ADHD people, we are hunters. Mm -hmm. We are people who are wired to change direction at a moment's notice because we see some new data. We are wired to go on the hunt Mm -hmm. and perceive reality through our senses and to, to experience reality through motion, through movement. And these, as you already allude to, are the skills that you want in a hunter-gatherer society, but in a stationary, sedentary, somewhat sedentary society like our own, these skills are are difficult for people to to use to fit into the system. Um, Now, I want to make one additional point because I can see you're a student of history from what you said. You know, there are meta-analyses that suggest that the, the human beings who left Africa because we all come from Africa sure. originally. Those of us who left Africa, I guess, 70, 80,000 years ago, those people had a high incidence of a gene that is called the seven repeat allele of the DRD4 gene. And that's a dopamine receptor gene. And you know, dopamine is involved in our experience of reward and satisfaction. And those pe- people who have that particular variant of that gene are, are to some extent wired for novelty. Those are the kind of people who are going to say, you know, it's kind of boring here. Let's cross that body of water in these rickety little boats mm-hmm. to see what's on the other side. These are people who need to, who have a biologically determined need to seek out novelty. And so those are the people to a significant extent, according to paleo uh, anthropologists who left Africa um, 70 to 80,000 years ago. So we are, so ADHD people, we are wired to be explorers. We are wired to be adventurers. We are wired to take risks. The first book I published on ADHD was called Movers, Dreamers, and Risk Takers, Unlocking the Power of ADHD, rooted in that very belief. Make good soldiers too. Well, we do if, if there's some intensity. You know, sometimes we don't make good soldiers because we can be rebellious and bored (laughs) and bored. We don't. And if, and when an ADHD person is bored, oh boy, (laughs) bad things can happen. Has that happened in your life? Oh, absolutely. When I was, uh, I used to tutor this children in this family and they were very wealthy and I didn't know it, but they had the whole house arm, you know, alarmed. And I used to put, I used to go over to their house. I, I was like 20 and uh, I put my coat in the closet and there was this metal encased red button and I would put my coat in. I, I just was, I couldn't wait to push that. I wondered with great curiosity what would happen. So finally, several weeks into this tutoring arrangement with these children, I had to push it. Well, the alarm went off and the police showed up in like four minutes and that was that risk-taking that need to see what happens to see what's on the other side sure it's gotten me in lots of trouble i broke my foot because i did a mountain bike course uh after it had rained and it was muddy and nasty and i knew that something was not right but i flew off a cliff and broke my foot i mean i have numerous stories like that so yes it's gotten me into trouble has it gotten you success too because it sounds like um you are more impulsive curious maybe to a bad degree because like that button it seemed almost like it was an obsession like it's, it was an obsession it's there, it's there. I can't, uh, like you couldn't get it out of your head you got to get that's to right it. um 
it does that same behavior though work sometimes in the positive like there's an extremely high um percentage of entrepreneurs that's right of adhd that's right well yes so i taught school for four years and i got really bored um because you know when you're a school teacher generally you're teaching the same stuff over and over again and yes you can bring a fresh outlook you can try different teaching methodologies but you're teaching the same stuff. And for, for me, it got really boring. In fact, so boring that my last year I was depressed. Hmm. I was just depressed because that's what happens for me. And a lot of ADHD years where we have some mood issues and boredom, the lack of adventure, the lack of satisfaction um, will lead to that de- feeling of depression. I call it my ADHD funk. And so I left school. That was a risk. I didn't have health insurance. I didn't have a job. I didn't know what I was going to do. But in that intensity, uh, I was able to do some other things. And what I did was I ended up um, working with people who had ADHD. I developed this reputation at school for being able to turn around kids with Mm -hmm. ADHD. And after I left the school, that reputation led to people calling me. And uh, that's how I've largely made my living for the last 20 years. Uh, I help ADHD children succeed in school and and adults. I have somebody right now who's in medical school. I have another client I work with who's in law school. So that's what I do. But that allows me flexibility. See, so I just was in London uh, last week doing to a speaking tour for my book. So my job, I'm flexible. I have freedom. I can take time out to uh, do adventures. Now that I've had that adventure, I'm good to go for another couple weeks, maybe a couple months. But then eventually I'm going to need something else to spice life up a little bit. That's how my brain is constructed. Hmm. So being on your own probably helps keep the variety up enough to where you can drop one thing and move to another. Hopefully that's right. the first thing. Um, on your book tour, I believe... Your latest book is something um, called Schindler's Gift, and it's about Schindler having ADHD. Yeah, it's about a man named Oscar Schindler, who many people are going to be familiar with because of the movie Schindler's List. And when I watched Schindler's List, I developed the suspicion that he had ADHD. And in fact, there was a scene in the movie when he comes up with this preposterous idea that he is going to get Jewish investors to give him money to buy a factory. And Ben Kingsley, who's playing Yitzhak Sturm, says to him, Mr. Schindler, let me understand. They put up all the money. I do all the work. What if you don't mind my asking, would you do? And Schindler says, I'd see to it was known the company was in business. I'd make sure it had a certain panache. That's what I'm good at. Not the work. Not the work. The presentation. (laughs) When I saw that scene, I said to myself, wow. I watched it several times. I kept rewinding it because I saw that movie at the first first time at home. And I said, I think he had ADHD. I've been to Poland 10 times. I've been to the Czech Republic. I've read every possible article, Schindler survivor account, uh, several books by scholars on Schindler. And I am overwhelmingly convinced that he had ADHD. And at the very least, if somebody wants to pick to split hairs with me, he had all of the fundamental executive function deficits that are characteristic of ADHD. He didn't just have a couple. He had almost all of them. Hmm. Um, so, so the reason I wrote this book and I call it Schindler's gift, how one man harnessed ADHD to change the world 
because I think ADHD people do have a power and often have an intensity Mm -hmm. that can make positive and meaningful changes in this world. But the way we have to go about it is different. There's no roadmap. I mean, if you're, if you want to become a doctor, there's a roadmap. You got to do a lot of things. And if you're one of those people who knows how to persist and plod through, you can be a doctor. It's not easy, but you can do it. But for ADHD people, we often don't have a roadmap on how to succeed. And that's one of the things I try to do in this book, Schindler's Gift. Not only teach people about history and about this amazing man, but give us all a roadmap to make change in this world. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I actually view it as a, I view it as a gift. I don't personally have it, but I can see where it may actually be um, incredibly powerful tool. And by that, what I mean is, have you heard of the theory of essentially green spaces or blue spaces or just spaces, period? And that is, if you want to start a business or you want to succeed at something, you can jump into this crowded marketplace or you can pivot slightly and you see where there's a space between a couple areas. And I would think that the ADHD person, because they're not able to fit in with the crowd who is going to be in a crowded space, very naturally is inclined to notice these other avenues that the rest of us are blind to. Well, I think that's very true. I, I think that, in, and I'm very lucky. I There was a niche uh, for what I do. I, I don't know anybody that does exactly what I do, to be really honest. And I've, I've, I've had offers off from all over the country and, and actually in the United Kingdom uh, is, and Greece to come there and do what I do in different countries. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. And we like a niche because that affords us independence. Uh, and it, it's kind of exciting. It's kind of exciting to forge and create something new. Now, as I say that, I want to say that I do agree with you. I focus on the positive sides, but I, you know, I have this friend, Gina Perra, and Gina wrote a book called, Is It You, Me, or Adult ADD? And Gina, whose opinion and perspective I appreciate, she thinks it's dangerous to talk about ADHD as a gift because if we talk about it as a gift, then the people who suffer, and especially those who suffer severely, hmm. they're not they're going to be enabled to have a mindset that they don't really have to work on their, themselves. Oh, it's a gift. No big deal. I don't have to, you know, it's all a gift. It's all wonderful. It's all good things. Hmm. And so we have to be careful when we call it a gift that we realize that there are a lot of liabilities. I mean, I have trouble um, depositing checks in the bank. I have checks go stale because I lose them. I, I, I procrastinate. Mm. I'm still struggling with that. Um, you know, there are a lot of aspects of life that I struggle with. A lot of, a lot of aspects that require persistence and follow through. I get into funks every week. I get into a funk. I'm going to be honest with you. I had, I scheduled this podcast with you and about two hours ago, I had my normal ADHD funk response. Oh God. Why did I tell him I'd do it on a Saturday? I wanted the whole day off. Oh, my God. I'm going to cancel. I can, I can come up with a good excuse. And I'm a great excuse maker. Yes. You know, but what I've had to develop, Eric, is a subroutine in my head that talks me out of the funk and, and positive self-talk. But let me tell you, I got a tremendous amount of self-sabotaging, self-destructive, negative self-talk in my head. 
And if I hadn't done an enormous amount of work on myself, gone to therapy, meditation retreats, Buddhist meditation retreats, all sorts of stuff that I did for two decades, I wouldn't be able to persist through this. So it is a liability, especially that funk that I go into, that moodiness, that depression, because when I'm in that state, it's really hard to get out of it. And then I make stupid decisions or at least, let's say, self-sabotaging decisions. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that because I believe you had once used a fire or a house fire as a method to get out of a lot of things that you decided you didn't feel like doing. Well, I I, I had a house fire and um, I didn't set it. No, uh, I did a not. friend of mine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I know who did, and I'm not going to say that on air, and it was an accident. Right. Um, We're pretty sure that he put a cigarette out in what he thought was a pile of dirt that was a pile of peat moss. Um, But that fire lit a fire under me. And a guy, I had needed to do all of this house repair and all of these projects. Well, I did everything as a result of that fire. And I spent two to 3,000 hours that year um, working on that. So that's one of the things that can happen with ADHD people is when we have the right stimulus. I mean, I'm telling you, I hate painting. I hate picking out clothes. I hate picking out furniture. I hate shopping. But during that year, because I lost all my stuff, I had to go to school on home improvement. I had to go to school on interior design. And I now have a beautiful house. Hmm. But to get my house, I'm not recommending that you have a house fire. But I'm saying that with the intensity of that, I was able to get done more than I think the average person would have been able to get done. Because I um, function optimally under intensity. Hey, you go to the emergency room, you, you see your doctor the chances of that person having ADHD are pretty high because that's a medical professional with the hard work and the intelligence to get to that stage. Mm. But it's somebody who likes intensity. That's what that job is about. There's a lot of ADHD emergency room physicians. I've worked with many of them as a coach. That's funny. Okay. So I've often wondered about that. Would it be fair to say that your condition is you're almost scattered, but then once you lock on, to a particular thing, you're a pit bull and you oh, yeah. through it. Absolutely. And uh, I, it's hyper focus. And the problem with hyper focus is that it's, it can be transient. It comes and goes. And so the trick of my life is how can I, what steps can I take to create hyper focus in my life? And I have a lot of things I do to keep that going. Now, if you were to examine the way that I write, because I've had, I'm, I've, uh, this is my fourth book. Schindler's Gift is my fourth book, mm-hmm. okay? And I work fifty hours a week, okay? So, I mean, I'm, not, I'm a busy guy. Sure. How did I do that? Well, I get up one morning and I feel motivated and I ride that horse till I drop. Some days I write six, seven thousand words a day, mm. and then after that, six or seven thousand words. I may not write anything for a month, but that's, that's how I work. So it's a momentum. It's moment. Yeah. I, I have to learn to ride that horse when it comes, but I also have a whole series of tricks I do to keep that horse going. Uh, a lot meditation, mindfulness practices. I do mindfulness meditation every single day. 
I have to exercise every day. When I sit down, like if I promise somebody I'm going to do a blog, a guest blog post for their site, uh, I have to get it done. So I, I have a trampoline. I get on my trampoline and I think about ideas when I'm on my trampoline. Hmm. Um, I have friends that I call. I have a, a friend of mine. I call her my rent-a-mom, Barb. And I have Barb call and yell at me. And when Barb yells at me, it helps me get motivated. Uh, I, I recommend the rent-a-mom um, method, by the way, for, for those of you who are struggling. <laughs> uh, but it's not easy. You know, it, it it's not easy. And there are days that I want to do nothing. I mean, I wanted to do nothing today. Uh, but here I am talking with you. Um, and I'm going and here's the crazy thing. And this is what a lot of if, your listeners who are ADHD will, will most likely resonate with this. I set up something I get excited about, you know, whatever it is, an interview or a talk or whatever. And then as it nears the date, I'm like, Oh my God, why did I, why did I set that up? Oh, what was I thinking? But then after I do it, I'm like, Oh, that was really good. I'm glad I didn't give that guy an excuse. But as many times as I do that, I still encounter the resistance. I still encounter the resistance. It doesn't go away. It, um, I, I can relate to that actually. And I think a lot of people can in a different way. Um, it's cool that you have accountability set up with your uh, rental mom, but not just her, but many people. Yeah. And that definitely helps, but I I'm a runner and I can tell you that most runs suck. So you'll yeah. spend a lot of time even during the run going, why am I doing this? God, this sucks. Ow, this hurts. Okay, I'll just go a little bit more. But after almost every run, you're glad you did it. And you feel a degree of satisfaction that you actually complete. Right. Right. So that brings up an excellent point, Eric, because, you know, a lot of people have symptoms that are part of ADHD. I mean, people have working memory problems where a task they're doing is interrupted, maybe by a phone call, and they forget to go back to the task. That's called working memory. When you once a task is interrupted, and you know you can then remember to go back to it. Well, lots of people have that experience, but with an ADHD or that type of thing, can it can occur all the time. And when your task gets interrupted, you totally forget about it. So it leads to a lot of projects not being finished. Uh, and so forth. So a lot of ADHD people, we have a trail of unfinished projects behind us. So it's hmm. different, you know, it's very different when you have, you know, the occasional um, sort of what could be called an ADHD symptom. And when you have six out of the nine that uh, define ADHD in either, there's two different symptom clusters. And, and the psychiatric community uh, has come together and said that when you have six of the nine of, of those symptoms, that's a, something that impairs your ability to succeed in school, in relationships, in career. And, you know, there's a lot of people that have two. There's a lot of people that have three. But I can tell you, when you get up to that sixth level of the uh, six of those nine, uh, it life can become a whole lot more difficult. Do you, by chance, have those posted somewhere or can point out a resource that um, listeners can go? Yeah, if if go to Google and just put in um, symptom clusters ADHD, symptom clusters ADHD. Let me. I'll tell you what. Let me. I have them posted somewhere, but okay. Well, get get with me after, and we'll put in the show notes. Yeah, Um, yeah. If you go, if you go to, if you put in symptom clusters ADHD, you come from a come to a National Institutes of Health. article 
and uh, you know you can certainly find those. And I'm certainly happy to get you another um, another site. Yes. Yeah, so anyway, yeah, it is interesting because it's not just you know it's not just something like oh he's ADHD or he isn't. It's really about do you meet the criteria? Do you have at least six out of the nine symptoms in one of two clusters? Right. And I have a feeling because you didn't discover it until you were 25 that I potentially have a bunch of listeners who have this issue and may never realized it. Yeah. And you know what, it was useful to me to understand that because it, it, a lot of the difficulties I had had in my life um, made sense for me. You know, I was able to figure out school because I had a mother who was constantly uh, helping me develop alternative strategies to um, school. So I ended up doing really well in school. But for me, it showed up socially because I was such a hyperactive person and my mind kind of went a mile a minute. People had a hard time connecting with me and mm-hmm. I had a hard time figuring out how to dial that back enough and how to work with that to connect with people. So a lot of, you know, especially through high school and grade, you know, grade school, people thought I was just weird. I thought I was just weird, you know, and it just happens that, no, I, I'm like, I'm like a, uh, 220 power source that you plug into 110 volts. You know, it just doesn't Hmm. quite work with the way the system's wired. I have one more symptom. I'm just curious about, Mm -hmm. is there, um, any kind of a OCD parallel or quality to it? Well, um, OCD is usually treated with um, the same types of medications that you treat uh, depression with. Uh, ADHD people can have OCD. In fact, I've worked with several people who have ADHD and OCD. Um, But again, I'm going to come back to that, what I said about dyslexia. When you have a person that has a mental health challenge that relates to differences in the brain... Once you get one difference, you can get a lot of other ones. Um, but if you know, if you think about it from a medication standpoint, um, OCD is treated with generally. There's several different medications, but let's say the same types of medications that you use to treat depression. Um, some types of you know very unusually presenting OCD can be treated differently, and ADHD is treated with medications that uh, are stimulants. So they impact the um, dopamine uh, reuptake in the brain, and they impact the reuptake of norepinephrine uh, as well. Um, but people, w- people with ADHD can um, have OCD, and that's a particularly pernicious uh, combination uh, to deal with. Now, I want to also say that um, I deal with a lot of gaming addicts, right. and there is often an element of OCD in the way that um, people relate to games. And with people with ADHD, there's often a tendency to obsess on negative thoughts. There's something called AMTs, ANTs, automatic negative thoughts. And ADHD people are often afflicted by those. I am, and I have to work really hard to not fall into that. I call it the ant pit, A-N-T. I can fall into that and I can just be negative all of the time. And there is an obsessional and a compulsive quality to that. I, when I'm in that state, I often feel that it's, I almost feel that it's my job to have a negative thought and a Mm. negative take on a situation. I have to be very careful with that. That's what I was wondering. If not the thing qualities of it and being in a negative feedback loop is 
horrible. Painful. Horrible Painful. nightmare. But that's a perfect pivot point because you are also known for dealing with cyber addiction. We're on 2020, et cetera. Yep. And I wanted to ask about that, not only with games, but I kind of feel like there may be a bit of a porn addiction problem that could be related. Well, and I, I deal with the, with both of those and, you know, pornography is uh, becoming a, a problem because so many young people are exposed to it early on. And the danger is that, you know, they equate intimacy with what they're seeing on the screen. And that is usually not an intimacy that you're going to get from a, a, a satisfying and emotionally intimate relationship. Um, but I think that's part and parcel of the whole package that, that increasingly we are all getting our entertainment more and more and more online. And what I worry about with young people is that they're wiring their brains in a way that prefers screens over one-on-one interactions with people. And so I think that that over time we're going to find that there may be a subtle denigration of our people skills as a whole culture, our people orientation and our people skills. And, and there are some studies that are starting to find that as well. So isn't that a problem of being able to derive satisfaction, be it a game, be it porn, be it even a little dopamine hit because you got a friend request on Facebook that it's much easier on a screen and online because you're getting this continuous positive reinforcement which I'd almost call negative versus in real life where we don't always get along so well. We, we have challenges in our relationship. Well, I, I certainly agree with you. And I think the, the word that you said that was very, very uh, pertinent here is satisfaction because, you know, it, let's say I'm not a video game addict. Let's just say I'm an excessive user of the computer. I can check my email. I have two different email accounts. I can check both of those. And each time I check something, I, I, oh, there's mail. That's a micro satisfaction. And then there was was an email that I really actually am interested in. There's another satisfaction. But then once I've exhausted the opportunities for satisfaction, that little feeling of micro satisfaction that I get from that, then I can go to Facebook. Then I can, you know, I have an Instagram account that I post on about books that I can go to Instagram. Um, You know, then I can go to Google News. And, you know, I add infinitum and there's all sorts of different things I can do. I can be lost for long periods of time. And I, I think that as a culture, not just children, but adults, you know, we, we are developing this um, truncated attention span. You know, we, we pay attention to things for a very short period of time and then we change and then we go to something new. And so, you know, we're, a lot of us are increasingly not immersing ourselves. You know, even like the news cycle, uh, people go on Facebook and they see some controversial headline. Mm-hmm. They post that on their uh, social media feed with negative commentary. I can't believe mm-hmm. this. I told you that they were going to do this. And then it turns out that, that that they didn't read the article. I've been guilty of this myself. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you do some research and you find out that it was just clickbait. But so many, we're not going to, you know, we're to the point that we're just going on headlines. We're not even reading the articles anymore, um, a lot of us. And if you look at children's cartoons, you can see that this is at work. Um, I haven't published this paper, but I have a bunch of stuff written 
where I've talked about the um, length of time that each frame in a cartoon lasts and it has decreased. And so now if you try to go to the Cartoon Network and try watching some of the cartoons that are within the last five years, they switch incredibly fast. Jump cuts. Almost. Yeah, exactly. And that's what the children nowadays are growing up with. So their brains, I believe, are becoming excessively wired toward the expectation that things are going to change quickly and um, you know, not just like one character within a frame, but the complete sure. frame. And I just wonder what this is doing to their brains. I can't watch because I had my nephew over a couple weeks ago and I tried it again. I tried watching cartoons with him. I can't watch them. It, it is, it's disconcerting to me because it changes so quickly. Mm -hmm. I have a physical reaction to it. So I think as a culture, we need to really be aware of this. And one of the things that I recommend, and people think I'm crazy for recommending this, but I recommend a tech fast. Go a day without your phone. Go a day without your computer. You know, okay, you might have a call from work. So if you get a call from work or a text from work, take it. But just try to do a tech fast. Try to, to put some intention around uh, building some self-control and doing things other than those that require a screen interface. So I, I have strongly encouraged families to do this, and it's the main thesis and thrust of a book I wrote a couple years ago called Get off that game now, the essential family <laughs> guide to healthy screen behavior. I like to read it with that kind of dire um, sure. announcer's voice. But that it's, it's basically 88 pages uh, of how to do a tech fast as a family. And uh, I, I strongly – and everybody that does it says, wow, this is great. I mean, people go out and they volunteer at the soup kitchen. They go down the street. There's an 83-year-old lady down the street, and we raked her leaves together. And people feel good, and they feel mm. connected in a way that they don't feel from screen alone. It's funny. I can totally relate to that personally in a weird way. Um, I was called on jury duty this year. Oh, boy. And we can't have our phone or any electronics with us on jury duty where I live. And I was pining so much for yeah. that phone throughout the day. So I, I can tell you firsthand that I, I know that I've got an issue. And I also have interviewed um, someone who is an Orthodox Jew. And he has gone on and he confirmed my thoughts on that. They have the Shabbat or Shabbat mm -hmm. every week. And they can't have any kind of electronics, anything. No. And they have that tech fast essentially weekly. And he said it's been very helpful for him and his family and everything else because every week they have to do that family thing. Yeah, it's and uh, people report amazing things. But I, what amazes me is that few people uh, don't do it. But so, uh, again, to your listeners, please, ladies and gentlemen, try to do a tech fast. And incidentally, if in your family you have somebody that you could call a screen addict, the tech fast can really push that person's buttons. So be very careful. And if you've got a person who can't do it, nothing suggests a problem exists more than that. And if it's a child we're dealing with, you may want to have a talk with the pediatrician. You may want to have a talk with a therapist because uh, that is a problem. And if if you try, you would be amazed at how what the high percentage of people that cannot do it. Uh, and man, that is just a problem with self control. Uh, and I, 
I just challenge everybody to take your human evolution a step higher and try doing a tech fast and try filling your lives with things other than a screen. On that note, do you like what Apple has started doing with the iPhone where they're tracking your screen time? I love it. I love it. I love it. And I love that, you know, if you're a parent, if you're a parent and you have a child with a cell phone, a smartphone, and let's face it, if you're, if you're one of those strident parents who thinks that your child should not have a cell phone, I, I certainly understand where you're coming from. But then your child is with other children that have them. And so your child's mm-hmm. going to feel the odd man out. And that can be very difficult uh, for children. I have found uh, ongoing access to a smartphone to be one of the most potent uh, motivational carrots that parents have. And all you got to do is, you know, oh, he didn't do his homework. Oh, he didn't turn that math assignment in. Go to your phone. You you can uh, configure your own phone to have access to that through your account. Turn the phone off. Don't argue with him. And then when he comes home, scream and say, oh, gosh, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, as your <laughs> as your dad, I have to enforce, you know, rules. And you're, I'm not letting you have it. If, if I let you have a cell phone when you're not uh, – meeting the responsibilities uh, of your life, I would be a bad parent. I'm not willing to be a bad parent. Get those assignments in. I'll turn it back on. Uh, m- most potent motivational carrot, among the most potent motivational carrots in the history of parent-child <laughs> relations, I maintain. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. Yeah, it is fierce. Now, to wrap things up, do you have any other brief guidance or suggestions that may help besides the fast? Well, I, if you're going to do a fast, I mean, it, the problem is akin to when an addict stops, let's say a, an alcoholic stops uh, drinking. Well, a lot of the daily behavior was wrapped up into thinking about drinking, getting the alcohol, drinking it. And if you're going to have a family, maybe concealing it, that's a lot of energy. Well, once you take that away, and you don't have to spend that energy, you got to fill your time with something. So if you're going to do a tech fast, one of the most important things is to think through what you're going to do. I have had, The people that are most successful are the people that give themselves a schedule on that day, and they kind of plan their days out so they know what they're doing, because that gives them something to look forward to, and so they don't feel they're just in this black screenless void. That's how a lot of people experience it, but just plan it out. And if you're going to do it as a family, um, I wouldn't just abruptly do it. I would start talking about it a month or two months beforehand. And I always recommend that parents be the model. So as I, as a parent, I would recommend that you do your own tech fast and let your kids know that you're doing the tech fast and you be the model first and then say, well, we're going to do this as a whole family. Let's look at dates. You know, when do you guys want to do it? Um, Yeah. So those are some of my recommendations. If people are really serious, you can certainly, I think it's $3 on Amazon or something, get a copy of Get Off That Game Now, The Essential Family Guide to Healthy Screen Behavior. (laughs) Okay. Well, wonderful. Now, um, people can find you at kevinjroberts.net yes, to find not, out more. Yep, not.com.net, and don't forget the K, the J in the middle, kevinjroberts.net. If you're curious about Oscar Schindler, uh, you can. It's on Am- all my books are on Amazon, so Schindler's Gift, all you got to do is put that in the Amazon search bar, is on there. Uh, be happy to get one of those over to you. So um, 
Yeah. So if, if anybody has any questions on ADHD or cyber addiction, please go to my website. You can contact me there. I would love to help. Well, wonderful. And hey, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Come, I'd like to come again. Now, tonight's adventure into the unknown. Shut up and sit down. Sarge and Frenzy from the Sarge Approved Podcast. Uh, if you're not familiar, the Sarge Approved Podcast has a guest every episode featuring uh, people like actors, comedians, uh, survival experts, authors, martial arts experts, basically a whole gamut of badass people. Yes. And you can check out all our episodes on all the podcast platforms, iTunes, Spreaker, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, um, yeah. you can check us out on all our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the things. It's all at Sarge Approved. Yep. Check it out and we hope you enjoy it. Bye. Later. Was A Quiet Place inspired by signs it comes at night in War for the Planet of the Apes? Was Ready Player One influenced by Avatar, Wreck-It Ralph, and The Last Starfighter? Is a hurricane heist more influenced by Sharknado or Geostorm? These are the kinds of questions my guest co-hosts and I discuss on my podcast, Piecing It Together. Every week, we look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it, whether it's the story, the character development, tone, or even use of music. Every movie was influenced by something that came before, and we want to figure out what. Check out Piecing It Together on your favorite podcast app or check us out on piecingpod.com. You can also follow us on social media at piecingpod. Piecing It Together is a part of the All Points West Podcast Network.